I owe so much in this message to the masterpiece that is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Over these last couple of weeks, I've been revisiting that, that book, just came back to memory and began reading through it again and, and just really stirred me with, with this just beautiful treatment of our salvation, our atonement, Christ incarnate, God in the flesh, Christ our mediator, Christ our savior, redeemer, Christ our coming king, all centered in the cross. As I was reading this past week, there was a portion of the book that, that really just struck me. And I thought that's just so critical to, to us, to where we are and how we think. And he brought up the idea of, of a caricature. You know what a caricature is, right? I mean, maybe some of you have some. Maybe you had one drawn for you at the fair or the peanut festival. Uh, years ago when Cecilia and I were still enga just engaged, not married yet, uh, we had a caricature, caricature drawn, and uh, we used to hang it in the bathroom at the house. It was kind of flattering. I like to look at it because in this caricature, I'm standing in the water as a lifeguard, and I'm saving Cecilia from a shark. <laughs> and I've got exaggerated muscles, and Cecilia's got exaggerated hair, and uh, I mean, you know the idea. But I guess if you pitted that caricature up against the real thing, you might be a little bit uh, disappointed what you find it doesn't exactly match it's not exactly a realistic picture it's not clear it's just just sort of a fanciful image somebody drawn up in their own heads and translated to paper and you know human caricatures can be fun and we do them with our kids and things like that and they can be you know just whimsical meaningless but if in your mind you have a caricature of Christ if you have a picture of the son of God son of man that doesn't fit his own self-revelation, that doesn't fit the testimony of Scripture, that, that doesn't align with what he came to do and how he came to do it. If, if you've got a picture of Christ that is a caricature, well, then everything is at stake then. For Christ to do what he said he did, what he claimed to do, what most of us in this room for ourselves and for our families fully believe that he did, he has to be exactly who he said he was. He has to be as he is defined by himself in his word. He, he has to fit. P.T. Forsyth, an English, English congregationalist, wrote in The Cruciality of the Cross, 1909, these words. He said, Christ to us is just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. Today, as we look at Isaiah 53, we take another look at the cross of Christ. Christ who became flesh for us. Christ who suffered and died for us. Christ incarnate. Christ the mediator. Christ the redeemer. The soul means to our salvation. As we look at the cross today, we see this collision. A God who is holy and just, loving and merciful, and a people that he'd made that do not love him in response, that rebel against him, that deserve judgment, and yet he wishes to give mercy. How do these things possibly come together? Here's what Stott said about that. He said, a vision of God's holy love will deliver us from caricatures of him. 
We must picture him neither as an indulgent God who compromises his holiness nor to spare us and spoil us, nor as a harsh, vindictive God who suppresses his love in order to crush and destroy us. How then can God express his holiness without consuming us and his love without condoning our sins? How can God satisfy his own holy love? How can he save us and satisfy himself simultaneously? And that's the message of the cross. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you've given us a capacity to see, to perceive, to think, and to respond, to will and to do. But Father, our capacity in all of those things is limited without the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, without the illumination of your Spirit, we will not see clearly. Father, without your work in our, in our inner selves, we won't think rightly. Father, without your drawing and calling, we will not respond as we should. So, Father, I pray that you give us ears that would hear and eyes that would see and minds that would perceive and hearts that would desire. Father, wills that are strong, Lord, so we might perceive rightly Jesus. And in seeing rightly, respond rightly, the only right way we can. Father, that in that, you would be so glorified that we would make much of you as we make much of your Son. Father, that we would be blessed beyond our ability to measure in this life because we've been redeemed by your great gift, because we've been the recipients of great mercy, because we have been loved with an everlasting love, and we have received it. Father, I pray that we receive it today. So, Father, speak, show, overcome, draw, save. All for your glory and our good, I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 53. We'll focus in on these three verses in the middle of the text, starting at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This morning, as you look on the sufferings of Jesus, I want you to consider what, what you see. And I want you to know that my approach to the text this morning, to the message as a whole, is this. I want to move beyond mere emotional responses today. You know, my desire is not to manipulate you. I could talk about the horrors of the cross. I, I could stir up some sort of visceral response from you. Some of you would be aghast. Uh, some of you would be shocked. Uh, some of you might be stirred to the heart with just grief and, and remorse and pain. But all of those emotional responses invariably fade. And they're poor motivators for a lifelong of faithfulness. I want to move beyond the emotional today. And I want to include, but I want to go past the merely theological, because my intent is not just to educate you today. I want you to know what happened, why it happened. And I want you to know how it fits into the story of God. But I want you to do more than just learn today. But I want to move us to the practical. And when I say practical, not just simply a self-help or life skill, 
But the practical application of looking rightly at what Jesus did on the cross and saying, there is only one legitimate response to this and only one horrific alternative to that response. And choose rightly. I want you to consider what you see upon the death of Christ on the cross. How can God, who can never contradict himself, God who can never be at odds with himself, with his own character, with his own nature, God who always acts absolutely in consistency with himself, God who is not sometimes loving and sometimes merciful and at other times judgmental and condemning, but God in always, at all times, is the sum total of all that he is. How can those things possibly work together? Because God does love us with a great love. God did create us to show his love to us, make his love known to us. God did create us so that we might know him and love him and enjoy him for forever. But with that love comes our response, and we have not loved him. And we've rebelled against him, some by simple ignorance, some by active resistance and rebellion. But nonetheless, the God that loves is, is unloved. And what is his response to that? Does he put aside justice? Does he put aside holiness? And does he decide to become for a season not that but just this? How do those two things coexist? How does a God who's absolutely just but completely merciful, infinitely holy but eternally loving, how does God satisfy himself? How is he going to be true to him? For he is ever true to him. And God being true to God is the basis of all of our hope, by the way. That he'll do what he says he'll do. That he'll be what he says he is. And that will always be true. How does this happen? How can God express simultaneously holiness and judgment and love and pardon? Well, the convergence of those things, the collision of those things, the application of all of those things, the combined action of all the attributes of God happen at the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, we see God who he really is. And don't forget the verse that we'll address next week that begins the next section of text. It was the Father's will. What happened at the cross was the will of the Father. This is his doing. What do you see? Now, I want to give you two decidedly theological statements. And I want you to have them sort of as a foundation, as a bedrock. But I want to explain what I mean by them and why they matter to us today. When you look at the cross, I want you to see this. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus is the righteous satisfaction of the Father's justice and the Father's love, both of which are infinite and simultaneous. Jesus is the righteous satisfaction of the Father's love and the Father's justice. And both of those attributes of God are infinite. He's them all the time to the nth degree, always, and they exist together concurrently, simultaneously. What do I mean by that? God, because of his holiness... To be true to himself must be just, or he ceases to be the God of the Bible. He becomes a caricature. He becomes something else. A God who is not infinitely holy, who is not only setting the standard of what is good, but he is himself that standard. If he ceases to be that, he's no longer true to himself, and he's not God. He's not the God of the Bible. He's the God of our imagination. And God in his justice must deal appropriately with sin. Now, you've heard me explain this before, so if you're a Calvary veteran, this will, this will be a bit redundant to you. If you're not, then let me explain this very briefly. When we think of the judgment of God over sin, think of this on infinite terms. 
To sin against me is one level of offense. To sin against someone much more influential and powerful than me would be a much higher level of offense. I mean, you can jump the fence and run into my yard and try to get in my front door, and not much will happen. If you do that at the White House, something far more severe will happen. But to sin against the Almighty, the infinite, the true and holy God, creates an infinite penalty, for He is the infinite God, and our sins against Him are infinite in nature. And He must judge those rightly. But yet God did not create us to condemn us, to destroy us. And in fact, in His mercy, He does not desire to treat us as our sins deserve to be treated. But in His mercy, He offers us something. He doesn't set aside His justice to do that. He doesn't stop being holy to do that. He doesn't condone. He doesn't accept. He doesn't permit. Instead, He satisfies His righteousness by taking the penalty that should rightly be placed on us and placing it on His Son. Now, I'm going to explain to you in just a moment how His Son is an expression of Himself, that the Father and the Son cannot be disconnected. They're in perfect unity together. Jesus is not a third-party actor stepping in who unfairly receives what should have been mine. We shouldn't look at Jesus as a random person selected by God to say, okay, instead of punishing all of you, I'll punish this guy, this poor guy. No, we should see the plan of God unfolding here so that his justice could be carried out and his love could be demonstrated at the same time because they're both infinite and just. In such, Jesus then becomes the divine substitute for the sinner. Jesus takes our place. When we think of what happens in salvation, I want you to think of these two words. Salvation happens by the satisfaction of God's infinite holiness and justice through the substitution of Christ. In Christ Jesus, we see God's love for us. God demonstrated his love for us, the Bible says in Romans 5.8. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an expression of his love, but it's also an expression of his justice. As he bears the full weight of the righteous wrath to which we deserve. Jesus was not angry at his son. Jesus was angry at the sins of this world, and his wrath was poured out appropriately on those. But when Jesus died for us, he wasn't simply the wrath bearer. He was the righteous bringer. And the Bible says that we get that great exchange. When we think of substitute, he takes what was ours, grants us what is his, and then we have right standing with God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous to the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In what way was Jesus a substitute then? What does the cross teach us? In what way was he a substitute? If he satisfies God, an expression of his righteousness, an expression of his love, by being a substitute for us, how did he do that? Well, the phrase that we looked at last week as we looked at the early part of Isaiah 53 is he does this by becoming our sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. If you look at the language of the Old Testament, beginning very much at the beginning, after God gave his law to the people, he began to institute a series of sacrifices. A reminder of his holiness and a reminder of the cost of our sinfulness and a, mind, a reminder of the provision that he made for fallen man who sinned. He instituted a sacrificial system. After he gave them the law, he gives them a system that was sacrificial and substitutionary. In other words, if you use this sacrifice, this sacrifice will be your substitute. Instead of you atoning for, paying for your sins, I'll give you a means. I'll give you a substitute to do that. We can see this in a number of Old Testament scriptures. Leviticus chapter 17, 11 tells us, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. 
Or as he said in Deuteronomy 12, 23, the blood is the life. God was telling his people in the Old Testament that blood is the very symbol of life. It's the very symbol of life. It's the, it's the core of life. Without it, life doesn't exist. It's the symbol of it. As a symbol of life, he reminded the people in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system that only blood can make an atonement for sin or life for life. Where there's sin, the resulting punishment is death, and the only atonement for that sin is life, life for life, death for death. That was God's intent. We see this in Hebrews 9.22, explained, without the shedding of blood, he said, there's no forgiveness of sins. This was the plan, and this was the imagery in their minds, a foreshadowing of what was to come, what was to find its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The Old Testament has shadows of a coming substance, a reality that's ultimate, that's final, that's complete. You see, for sacrifice to be effective, the sacrifice has to have an appropriate equivalent. In the New Testament, we find the teaching that how can a blood of an animal atone for the sins of a, of a human? Because Jesus himself said in the Gospels, you, after all, are much more valuable than sheep. You're far more valuable than an animal. To say that a sacrifice of an animal can pay for the sins of a person doesn't diminish the value of a person. It's a foreshadowing until we see Christ. What then is valuable enough to pay for the sins of a person? And not just a person, not just a one-for-one, one, but what could possibly be valuable enough to pay for the sins of a multitude, for the sins of a humanity? What is sufficient to do that? Only the sacrifice of Christ. So when you get to 1 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 19, you see this statement, with the precious blood of Christ. You've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And all that imagery, all that system of centuries of sacrifice finds its ultimate satisfaction in Christ. He is the fulfillment. He's our sacrifice. He becomes our sin bearer. God takes on Him, places on Him, as we saw last week, the iniquities of us all. He's our sin bearer. John, John the Baptist, that last of the prophets, recognizing the coming of Christ in John chapter 1, verse 29, sees Jesus coming towards him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, in order to better understand what Jesus did, we look to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament gives us all of our background information. The defining story of Israel's salvation in the Old Testament was when God delivered them from the Egyptians. And if you remember the final act of God's deliverance of the Israelites, his own people, from enslavement, bondage, and ultimately death, because the Egyptians certainly intended to kill them, was through the sacrifice of a lamb. And each of the families was to take that lamb without blemish or spot and take that blood and smear it upon the doorposts of their homes. The story of Israel's redemption is a foreshadowing of something much greater. Ultimately, Jesus is the one that redeems us. Jesus becomes the sacrifice that saves us. In the Passover, we see that God is both judge and provider. He's the one that causes the penalty he's the one that says the death of the firstborn will be yours but he's also one that provides the provision so it doesn't have to happen he is both and in the same way jesus becomes both jesus becomes both the one who declares the truth 
Ultimately, he'll be the one who judges us on our response to the truth, but he's the one that provides the means that we might be saved from the reality that truth brings. Salvation by substitution. People of Israel in the Exodus, saved by a lamb. The people of God in the New Testament, saved by the Lamb of God. That's the story of Passover. Likewise, Jesus, judge, redeemer. In the book of Hebrews, he's our merciful and faithful high priest. He's the one that intercedes for us. He's the one that bridges the gap between fallen man and holy God. But at the same time, he bridges that gap with himself. He brings the sacrifice of himself. He is that sacrifice. And he's the scapegoat which takes away our sin. He's the one upon which it is all placed so that we don't have to bear it. And that's the message of Isaiah 53. When you see this language, look at the language of sacrifice and sin bearer. Look at the one who became our substitute so that God's holiness would be satisfied and God would be true to himself and God's love would be vindicated and God would be true to himself and God's people would have an opportunity to respond by faith in what God has done. Just like the people of Israel must have heard the message. They had to hear it. They had to believe it. They had to trust in it and receive that blood for themselves. And in their response to it, God saved them. And what about you? Now I want you to look a little bit more closely for a moment. We can talk about the physical sufferings. We could talk about the pain. We could talk about the theology. But look just for a moment. What do you see? Do you see someone who's merely a man there? If so, how does it make sense that he could take the sins of all of us? I think we'd be right to argue that doesn't make sense. It's not fair. Uh, how can one person, it's not symbolic what he did there. It's not God's outlet expressed on Jesus that happened there. Is he merely a man or is he, is he God pretending to be a man? He looks like a man, but he's not really a man. He's not actually who he seems. If he's not really a man, how can he represent us in any way? How can he be, as we sang just a little while ago, the true and better Adam? Adam who led us into this world of sin. Adam who set the pace for us. Adam who initiated the course for us. Adam who genetically led us into sin. If he's not our representative, if he's not our mediator, how could he really save us? Or is he the one and only God-man? Uniquely constituted for this purpose. Uniquely able to bear the sins of many. Uniquely qualified to mediate before the Father. Uniquely sufficient to give life to all who put their faith in him. And I say to you, he is the third. And that matters. This distinction matters, and it matters a lot. Because if you don't understand this rightly, the atonement won't make sense. You'll be subject to the arguments of those who call it something like divine child abuse. You'll be subject to the false theology of Islam that posits that God and Jesus are not the same and that Jesus is not God. And what sort of God, by the way, would send someone else to do that sort of suffering? Would put that on someone else? That's not how we see it. God's character will come into question. And the very nature of Christ becomes cloudy at best, and a Christ who's unclear as a caricature, and a caricature of Christ is not a saving Christ. I want you to see these truths for a moment as you look more closely. I want you to consider that the Father is not set against the Son in our salvation. 
The Father is not set against the Son in our salvation. That God works in perfect unity to save us. I don't want you to see a, a separation of the Trinity when you look at our salvation. As John Stott said, he said, The Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal he was reluctant to bear. Nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation he was reluctant to bestow. This is not some grand negotiation whereby Jesus now becomes the object of the Father's mercy as he pleads for it, even as he's the object of his wrath. But instead to see this as the perfect work of God, best summed up, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to what Paul wrote. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's your salvation. The salvation that doesn't just change what you think, but changes who you are, that transforms you. You become a new creation in Christ. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that God has now placed in you a new heart. He's given you, breathed into you by His Spirit, new life. You are His. You once were this. You once were dead in your trespasses and sins, as all men once walked. But now, in Christ, you've been made alive, Ephesians tells us. This is the miracle of, of salvation. Where does our salvation come from? Verse 18 tells us all of this is from God. I think sometimes we look at the cross and we see this disconnect and we see God only operating out of some of his attributes. And here's God's wrath on full display. But Jesus, the kind and good and merciful, says, Oh God, don't judge them, judge me, pour it out on me. And we don't see that all of this is a work of God. That Jesus willingly embraced the cup of God's wrath. He willingly embraced the suffering for us. He came for this purpose in every self-declaration. He said the Son of Man came to save sinners, and he knew what that would entail. And the Father willed it and created all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I want you to underline that phrase in your notes if nowhere else. Maybe in your Bible if you're a note taker. In Christ God. God was saving us in Christ. And this was his plan and purpose. He works in perfect unity to save us. And as a result, the Son is neither God alone nor man alone. He's not God pretending to die on that cross. He's not God pretending to be a man. Acting as if he could understand us, commiserate with us, mediate for us, substitute for us. Nor is he man alone simply receiving an unjust punishment for sins he didn't commit. But he's the God-man who can mediate for us. He has the ability by his worth to pay for the sins of a multitude of believers in every generation. He has, by means of his divinity, the ability to be raised to life. In order to save us in such a way as to satisfy himself, God, through Christ, substituted himself for us. Divine love triumphs over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. And this is the message of the cross. They belong together. The person of Christ, the work of Christ. The person of God, the work of God. All in Christ. In this act, we see the great love of God for us. A love not set aside for justice and mercy. In the work of Christ on the cross, we see the great justice and holiness of God. A holiness and justice not set aside for mercy and kindness, but in both. The holiness, the will of the Father, 
are identical with the holiness and the will of the Son. The love and mercy of the Father are identical with the love and mercy of the Son, and they come together because God in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, was reconciling the world to himself. This is what happened at the cross. This is the true worth and meaning of Christmas. Now I've asked you to look at the cross again. I've asked you today to look at the Christ on the cross to identify him correctly, the true God-man. But the most important view of the cross is what it causes us to see in ourselves. How do we see ourselves in light of the cross of Christ? The defining work of history, the, the crossroads of history as it were, where all the past converges and all the future diverts. Everything centered right here in our response to it. How do I see myself in light of what Jesus did for me on the cross? I pray that today you'll see that what God in Christ did for us on the cross is both a fact. I pray that you see that God in Christ substituted himself for us. Jesus became our sacrifice, and that's a fact of history. It's a fact of our faith. It's a central fact of our faith. And I hope you also see it as a necessity, that there is no other way. That there is no other way God could be God, truly holy, actually just, truly merciful, actually loving. There's no other way that God's holy love could be satisfied and sinful human beings could be saved. I hope you'll see this fact and necessity. And as you do, as a believer, the response is, is really this. It's awe, it's wonder, it's worship. I mean, it's worship to know how God loved you. That the demonstration of God's love is real and actual. It's visible, it's tangible. If you had been there, you could hear it, you could smell it, you could see it. It's visceral. He demonstrates his love for us, and that results in our worship. Not our indebtedness, for who could repay such a debt? To see the gift of Christ on the cross, to see the infinite worth of Christ, does not evoke in us a sense of, I better start paying this back. If it does, we haven't seen his true worth. No, it invokes in us a sense of absolute worship. God, how could I ever? What would I ever offer? What could I ever repay for the life that you've given me? What would I give for my life? What would a man give for his own soul? But no, I will thank you forever, God, that you love me this way. But if you're not a believer yet, here's the great offense of the cross. This is where the cross collides with us. Because it hits us square between the eyes at the point of our pride and our sense of self. It, it hits us right between the eyes with our notions of being able to fix things, remedy things, save things, particularly ourselves. If we see this rightly, what we see is the infinite seriousness of human sin. Sin that required the Son of God to be treated this way. Sin that required the sacrifice of our sins to be made this way. The cost of sin like this. Can you humbly acknowledge the seriousness of your own sin? At the offense of your own pride? Maybe your sense of self-worth or value, can you acknowledge that it is sin that put Christ there? And those sins belong to you and me. And these aren't theoretical. Our feelings of guilt are not psychological. They're actual. For we are guilty before God Almighty. 
Can you acknowledge that? Because if you can, if you can humbly acknowledge the seriousness of sin, the weightiness of sin, if you can take that sense of of pain, of, of heaviness, of darkness even, then you're on the cusp of discovering grace. Grace greater than our sin. Grace greater than your sin. And you've heard me say this before, but if you're new, let me say it to you maybe for the first time. If you can't see the seriousness of sin, you can't see the worthiness of grace. If you can't see the weightiness of sin, you won't see the worth of grace. If you can't see the seriousness of sin that caused this event to take place, then you'll never see how good is God's grace that says, though you deserve death, I will give you life. I'll give you life through grace. And if you can see the seriousness of your own sin and the magnitude of God's grace in seeing both, then the right response is humble repentance to receive mercy. God saved me, a sinner. God saved me, a sinner. I I believe fully that what Jesus wanted every lost person to see at the cross was themselves up there. That should be me. That should be me up there. Because God is God and will be true to God. And I deserve what I deserve because I know myself, even though I know he knows me better. That should be me. But thank God it's Christ, Christ for me, life for life. This could have been me. Will you humbly repent? Because if you will, you'll receive mercy. you receive mercy. Your sins atoned for on that cross, the death of Christ for your sake. So that you would not suffer, but so that you would have life and you receive mercy and life and every benefit, as I shared this morning in our parent commitment service, every benefit of being made a child of God. The inheritance, the future, the hope, the security, the love, the life, the joy, the peace, the everything of Christ. Or will you choose the only alternative to the cross? There really is only one. I mean, again, if I've, if I've made my case today, an infinite, holy, and just God who also simultaneously is infinitely loving and mercy, merciful and a people, persons, you, who have rebelled against him, refused him, rejected him, sinned against him. What must he do? What must he do? What else could he do? He did it. He did what was sufficient for your salvation. To refuse it or to reject it is to choose its alternative. And the only alternative is not, a, it's not just an emotional one. It's an entirely logical one. If God is just and holy and sins must be punished or God ceases to be God and he will not cease to be God, then the only alternative, uh, apart from the cross, there's no hope, there's no forgiveness, there's no reconciliation, there's no mercy. That leaves one alternative and that's hell. Hence the doctrine of hell, the unpopular doctrine of hell. For too many, the seemingly illogical doctrine of hell. But in light of the cross, hell becomes infinitely logical. Either the sufferings of sin will be atoned for by the infinite mercies of Christ, the Son of God, the true God-man on the cross, for all who, who trust in Him and believe in Him, or those Sins will be paid for in eternal suffering in hell. And that's, that's the logical conclusion. Life for life. Sin for sin. Death. There are only two choices. 
You look at yourself in light of the cross. What do you see there? Do you see the love and mercy of God? Do you see his justice and holiness poured out on Christ? Do you see the sin bearer there who is not victim but volunteer for your sake? Do you see the one who went to the slaughter like a lamb without saying a word? Not mindlessly, but purposefully. Not unwillingly, but intentionally. Do you see the one who bears your sins, or will you make the fatal, eternally fatal choice to be your own sin bearer? Sins are borne by Christ, or sins are borne by us. That's the offer of the cross. That's the beauty of the cross of Christ. What's your response to that today? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I ask you to do this for your sake, really, and for the sake of those around you. Just for a moment, if you would just head bow, eyes closed, just for a moment. I know that's old school, but I want to give you a chance to focus and think without unnecessary distractions. There's, there's an equality at the foot of the cross that's undeniable. At, at the foot of the cross, everyone is revealed. And though we may vary by degree, we don't vary by type. We're all sinners there. We're all sinners there. And a right understanding of what we see at the cross and what's fully explained in the revelation of Scripture, Old New Testament, is this. As sinners, we all deserve the same consequence. No one will ever be able to stand before God and say, this is not fair. This is not right. I deserve better than this. In, in fact, we'll be saying the opposite. We'll see so very clearly in the face of the Almighty as we stand before Him in judgment and see His holiness, we'll see so very clearly the seriousness of sin in the face of the Holy of Holies. There's no question. But for those who are in Christ, that moment will not be fearful. To see God is not to be not to be feared. There's no anxiety there. There's only longing. Because in that moment we know that we are the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this way He saved us. And all we're going to receive is the treatment that Jesus deserves. That's righteousness. Listen, the choice could not be, could not be more clear. Jesus died to save sinners. If that's you, then I've got good news for you. You don't have to pay the penalty for those sins if you'll trust the one who has. But I hope also logically I've presented the case not to scare you, not to manipulate you, because those feelings will fade. You'll go home, you'll think this thing through, and you'll decide you don't feel quite so stressed anymore. But the obvious teaching of Scripture, that if you refuse the payment for sin afforded to you by God himself, what hope is there for you? There's not. There's not. It's not fear-mongering. It's not manipulation. That's just truth. And so today, I want to I charge you. I want to challenge you. Come receive the gift of forgiveness in Christ. Receive God's mercy. Humble yourself. Receive it. Bow before him who wants to save you who wants to give you life and receive that life today.
Father, I pray, even now as I pray at the beginning, that you would make yourself known in the face of Christ. As we look at your word, as we envision the cross, as the panorama in our thinking shows us Jesus there, that we would see and understand what happened, why it happened, and what I must now do in response, the only right response, for there is but one alternative to faith, one alternative to belief, one alternative to humbly receiving mercy, just one. Father, may we receive life today that we might live. Father, be glorified in the salvation of your people today. Be glorified in the worship of the saints whom you have bought with the blood of Christ. Be glorified in those you are saving today as they respond to you. Be glorified in our worship. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.